uh, great to be with you uh, this uh, morning. Um, and as, as Pastor Pete mentioned, uh, today is going to be a little bit of a different sermon. Uh, we're going to be exploring a little bit more of that carol together. Now, um, if you're new with us, if you're joining us online, um, uh, if, if you are coming to check out church because, you know, it's Christmas time and, and that's something that uh, you might do, um, just want to extend a warm welcome to you. It's a great uh, time of the year to be exploring more of the Christian faith, and uh, you join many people uh, doing that each and every year, and many people who come to our church through our church doors each and every year as well. Now, um, as we begin um, uh, today, I, I just want to show you a few images of logos, yeah, of logos that will pop on the screen. Um, it's incredible just how much money is poured into these logos, but even more interestingly, how much they try to, these brands, these companies, how much they try to jam um, the logo with symbolism and meaning. Yeah? Um, uh, here's the first one. We all know this one. Amazon. Yeah? Amazon. Now, um, uh, famous, massive, huge company, Amazon. We know the, the orange arrow. Um, at the bottom of the text. Um, now, the, I don't know if you know this, the orange arrow uh, under, the te- under the text ha- has two kind of meanings. Yeah? Um, uh, the arrow starts, as you notice, from A, and it ends at the letter Z, uh, or Z. Do we say Z or Z? Z. Um, to show that the company sells nearly every product under the sun. You can name it, right? From, 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 from A to Z, it sells everything. Uh, the arrow, secondly, also represents a smile with a little dimple on the side. I'm not sure if you noticed that. There's a little dimple there, that little arrow, um, to evoke the happiness, well, meant to, evoke the happiness of customers as they shop for their products. Uh, Here's another logo. Um, The Tour de France. The Tour de France. Um, The annual famous bicycle race. Um, They've done something pretty creative uh, in their logo as well. If you look at the letter R, Right, combined with a little, little with the yellow circle and the dot, uh, what you're meant to see in that is actually a cyclist. Right, you see a cyclist there. Uh, the yellow also has a second meaning. It also represents the sun, um, showing that the events of the race that takes place that massive marathon of a of a race takes place during daytime hours only. Uh, one last one, Toblerone. Toblerone. Um, the Swiss chocolatiers at Toblerone, um, they feature a picture of the Matterhorn, right? Which is uh, the product's country of, in the product's country of origin, symbolizing now. For the keen eye, um, you'll notice that in, hidden in the Matterhorn, the peak, um, in that white space, um, you'll see an image of a bear. Yeah, maybe you've seen this before, an image of a bear. Um, why a bear? Well, apparently... Um, Toblerone is made in Bern, Switzerland, and the, and the symbol for this place is a bear. Um, even the, within the brand name itself, hiding there is the word Bern. Now, we'll stop there. Um, I could keep going. I don't know why I'm interested in this stuff. I, I, I just am. Um, but it's fascinating how much meaning is loaded into these logos, right? They're, these logos for these brands, they're simple, right? They're familiar, and yet there's a hidden depth, there's a hidden story in them and behind them. Our friends, I want to say that with Christmas just being a few days away, that um, many of the carols, actually, many of the carols that we know, many of the carols that we love, these songs that also are simple and also familiar, similarly have a profound depth and story to them. Now, the only difference is uh, they're not hidden away like the bear in the mountain, right? The meaning and the depth is actually front and center. But the thing is, the thing is, right, we've grown so accustomed 
uh, to these songs. We've become so saturated by them every time we walk through a shopping center or a supermarket, right? We've committed probably most of these carols, even their lyrics, to heart. And yet the profoundness, the richness, kind of just gets sentimentalized and lost. And so for today, as we've already just sung, um, we're going to reflect on the words of that carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, as a window into the depth and the richness of Christmas. Of Christmas. Now, um, it was Charles Wesley, Charles Wesley, brother of the famous preacher and theologian John Wesley, that first wrote the lyrics of this famous carol. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote like 6,000 hymns, more than that. And like any proud brother, and probably a little bit biased, John said that his brother's hymnal, his, his book of musical compositions, um, uh, was the best theological book in existence. Not any of his stuff, it's his brother's songbook that is the best theological book in existence. And so again, with Christmas just being a few days away, we're going to use one of Wesley's finest and most memorable works to just slow down a little. Yeah. And so regardless of whether you're a believer here or, or, uh, or if you're here for any other reason, my hope is as we come to Christmas that we do slow down. Right? We've heard um, the news, right? Um, maybe anxieties and weariness is, 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 is on the up. And so it's helpful, I think, to prepare our hearts, to prepare our minds to celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas well. So why don't we come to him and ask for his help to do that right now. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy of Christmas and the invitation that Christmas is to us and for us. We ask that you would stir our hearts and minds anew today. We thank you for this carol that in it is so much inspiration and creativity and poetry inspired by your very word. We pray that you might use this time to help us draw near to you, uh, to move our affections and our longings uh, rightly this Christmas. We pray that the amazing news that you drew near to us, that you came to us, that you became one of us, that it might ground us and move us to delight in you and who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, let's begin with the first verse um, uh, under our first point, hearing the invitation. Yeah, hearing the invitation. Because as we begin um, this song, this verse, that's what we're invited to do, right? Uh, hark, we start with hark, um, which is just an older, stronger way of saying, hey, listen. Listen to what these herald angels are singing. Hear what they are heralding. Right? What is their message? What are they heralding? Well, they're heralding a bunch of things. Right? We see their message in Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. It's in your outlines. Um, uh, an angel has just appeared before these shepherds who are in the fields living. They're watching their flocks at night. Uh, the angel has told them that a Savior is to be born in David's city in Bethlehem. And suddenly, we read in verse 13, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God. In the highest, and peace, um, and, pe on, and on earth peace to those on whom His favor rests. Right? These angels come, and together they are singing praise to this baby that has just been announced to the shepherds. They're announcing the birth of a king, the king. Right? And just like um, the news of somebody who's, of the president who's just won the election, or, or, or a team that's just won a championship, that that spreads and ripples throughout a country. The birth of a new king in ancient times would be announced and heralded across the land. 
And as it's doing that, as, as the news of a new king is, is, is heralded across the land, it's met with mixed feelings. Right? For some, it's news of great joy, excitement. But for others, it's news of great intimidation and fear. Right? With a new king, a new ruler, what, I mean, what type of king will they be? What would their rule be known by? What, 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 what does that mean for those who are currently in authority? Right? And Wesley says that this king's heralds, this king's messengers, they sing what this king will bring. Yeah, in the very next lines, that this king will bring peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. See, what will this new king be about? This king will be about peace. He's not bringing war. This king is about mercy, not condemnation and judgment. And, and this isn't some, you know, generalized, some trivial peace or mercy, some, some um, maybe self-help inner peace. No, this is far deeper. This is far more meaningful. This is peace and mercy where, you see, God and sinners are reconciled. Yeah, God and sinners are reconciled. See, friends, uh, there's a phrase that you sometimes hear in churches, uh, probably this church too, um, at Christmas time. It's that, that Christmas, at Christmas, we say that Jesus is the reason for the season. Who's heard that before? Jesus is the reason for the season, yeah? You hear that? It's, it's true, right? It's true at one level. And I can understand why we might say something like that because, you know, Jesus often gets just so blurred out, out of consciousness, out of our consciousness during the Christmas holidays. So I get it. But the thing is, Jesus is the reason for the season. It's only kind of partly true. See, it's not that Jesus is the reason for the season. It's our personal fractured relationship with God. That's the reason for the season. I know it's not as catchy. But from the Bible's point of view, it's our fractured relationship with God. That's, what, that's the reason for this season. It's our need to be reconciled with Him. See, what Wesley understood and what we sing whenever we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, whether we realize we're doing it or not, is we are acknowledging that there is a fracturing between our relationship with God. It's an acknowledgement that there is a need to be reconciled with God. Friends, the Bible tells us that God is like light, as we heard in the kids' talk. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly right. And so when He sees you and when He sees me, when He sees our world and He sees the darkness in our world, Right? When he sees our own hearts and what we do and think every single day and, 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 those, and, and the fact that we even hurt those that we most love. When we live as if he doesn't exist or choose to deliberately live as if, as if he doesn't exist. When we grieve and offend God every day, whether we realize we're doing it or not. Our relationship with God needs reconciling. Our relationship with God is fractured. And it makes sense, right? If God is really light, darkness is absent from light. If God is really good, evil is fractured from God. Good. If, if, if God is really all, always right, wrong is fractured from right. We are fractured from God. We live fractured from God. And like the hymn says, God and sin, not sadly us, needs to be reconciled. Um, a few years ago, I received um, headphones. These, um, these Bose headphones as a gift. Um, game changer of a gift, right? Um, the previous ones I had were like cheap, plasticky um, Australia Post ones that, you know, served its purpose. But these particular headphones had a function where you could cancel noise, right? Who has a pair of noise-canceling headphones? Yeah, okay, a lot of us, right? Noise-canceling headphones, game changer, right? The moment 
I brought it to the office for the very first time. The moment I turned it on, all the sounds of the office just flooded out the window, right? All the chatter was drowned out immediately. And all I could hear was the thing that I chose to play. The first time I brought it on an airplane flight. Right? Game changer. All of a sudden, all the engine sounds, the, the, the chatter, all the, all the wind blowing, gone. Drowned out instantaneously. Right? Noise cancelling as a feature is incredible, but we know that it has its limits, right? It has its limits when my colleague is tapping me repeatedly on the shoulder, telling me that my boss is calling out my name like ten times. It has its limits when the flight attendants give, give, give you a glance to take it off to listen to the flight safety instructions. See, when it comes to um, important things, things that we can't miss out on, we we can't keep that noise-canceling feature on, can we? We can't keep drowning the sound out. We actually have to hear and listen. And yet, when it comes to the news that Christmas declares, that God and sinner need reconciling, that we are fractured before a God who is light and love and good, what do we do? We often live like we keep that noise-canceling feature on. We live as though that invitation doesn't exist. But friends, like that tap of the shoulder of a colleague or a gesture of a flight attendant, this carol invites you and I to hark, to hear, to listen, to turn off the noise cancellation, to tune into what God is shouting in your direction this Christmas. That peace with God can be had. That mercy from Him is available. The true King, God's anointed King, which is what Christ means, by the way, has been born. And now healing and reconciliation is possible. How? Well, we'll come to that soon. But for now, would you hear that invitation? Would you hear and listen that mankind, that you and I, can experience reconciliation from our fractured relationship with God? And it's all to do with that King, that birth of that new King, that first Christmas. The offer has Come. Right, so that's our first verse. That's our first verse of the carol. Let's move on to our second verse. Our second point, which I'm summarizing as seeing the king. Yes, seeing the king. So the invitation has been sent. And so the second verse is all about seeing the identity now of this king. Yeah, the, the identity of this king. Now, why does Wesley go here next? Well, it's because the identity of this king, that this invitation of peace and mercy from, to, to be reconciled to God, that it's, it's from his identity that that invitation comes. They're inseparable, right? And so who is this king? Or to use the language of this king in the New Testament of the Bible, who is this Christ? Well, Wesley begins with who this king was for all eternity. He writes, Christ, by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. Now remember, Christ just means God's anointed king. This Christ is beloved, where? From the highest of heavens. The inner sanctum of God, His very throne room. This Christ is beloved and adored and cherished. And this isn't a momentary affection, right? This has existed for all eternity. This Christ is the everlasting Lord. He has been adored and beloved from eternity past. His rule has been a heavenly one, an everlasting one. But as Wesley says next, His reign will grow to take a different shape. Because on that first Christmas, later in history, or late in time, to use the language of the carol, this king comes. And we are asked to behold 
His coming. Yeah, to behold His coming. That's an odd word, right? Behold. We don't really use it very often. Behold. Um, there are very few situations that I think it, it'd be a little bit appropriate, right? Uh, um, we might behold the beauty of a sunset um, or a huge crowd that never seems to end. We might behold that as a sight. Uh, we might behold a bride walking down an aisle or some view that is worth beholding. Uh, to behold something is to do more than just see or to observe. It's to stand amazed at the sight of whatever the object is that you're looking at. That's what behold means, doesn't it? And so Wesley is inviting us to behold this king's coming, to stand amazed at this king's coming. Why? Well, it's because this Christ, who is beloved and adored in the highest heights of heaven, whose reign exists in the heavenly realms for all eternity, he doesn't come as a conquering king with an army behind him in glory and in splendor, as we might expect somebody that cherished and that powerful to do. No, this king, this Christ, comes by what? Choosing to leave that, the highest heights of heaven and arrive as a baby. As we sing, an offspring of a virgin's womb, if that's not crazy enough. Behold that sight. Pastor Pete's going to explore more about um, the significance of the fact that this Christ came in a virgin's womb on, on Christmas Eve, so tune in for that. But, but, there's, but there's even more reason to behold this sight, right? Not, not just that this, this Christ has come from heaven to be an offspring, to be a child. Wesley goes on, here's why, veiled in flesh the Godhead see this Christ. Right? We learn more about this identity of this born king. We're meant to, yes, we're meant to see that this Christ is beloved by God, whose, whose reign is everlasting. Yes, it's an incredible sight that he's now come as a bub. But, but Wesley now ratchets it up several notches. The king we see is in actual fact Godhead veiled in flesh. Godhead is an English word that translates a Greek word which captures the idea of the fullness of what it means to be God. In other words, Wesley sees that this king isn't separate to God. In this king we see and we behold God himself, veiled, now as a baby, in flesh. This Christ isn't some separate person. This is God become man, being born into our world. And so Wesley says, behold. Now he's not making this up, right? Christians have known and sung about this for as long as Christianity has been around. Now, one of the songs that they used to sing uh, the lyrics is actually in our Bibles from the book of Philippians. Right, we see it. that Though he, this king Christ, was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And see, friends, that first Christmas, this king who embodied the fullness of God came in flesh, born as a baby. And Wesley knows how insane and crazy that is. And so almost just to reinforce the point, so, you, so we don't miss it, he adds the next couple of lines. This king is the incarnate deity. Right? Incarnate mean, meaning embodied in human form. This is God again become man. This isn't something that is forced on him either. This king is pleased to be a man dwelling among mankind. And so who is this king? We finally hear his name for the first time, right? And I'm sure you've, you already knew this and figured it out long ago. This king is Jesus. 
our Emmanuel, which literally just means God with us. In the words of another writer, the all-powerful in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to, de- to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. The creator of life being created. God had come near. He came not as a flash of light or as an approachable conqueror, unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. Angels watched as Mary changed God's nappy. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him or vice versa. It could be that his knees were burning. One thing's for sure. He was, while completely divine, completely human. This is the God Charles Wesley and really all of Scripture invites us to behold. To stare at amazement at, this is the God we're talking about. Why would God choose to become finite and breakable? Why would the all-powerful God become a vulnerable baby? Why would God go to such lengths and expose himself in that way? Why would that first Christmas Jesus be willing to be born as a human in a manger? How is any of that logical? And so to that we turn to our final verse. And our third point. Rejoicing and receiving. Yeah, rejoicing and receiving. Our verse begins um, with Wesley just going to a bunch of references of Jesus in the Old Testament, right? In Isaiah 9 6, he's the Prince of Peace. In Malachi 4 2, he's the Son, S U N, of righteousness, which is why he brings life and light. Uh, he brings healing in his wings like the rays of a sun. But coming back to our question, why would God choose? To become man. Why would he go to such lengths to humble and expose himself like that? Well, we see it in the second half of our verse. And here's Wesley's answer to our question. He gives it in, real, in three parts, but it's really one answer. Yeah? And Jesus mildly or humbly lays his divine privileges and is born. So he lays his glory by. And then he's born that no more may die. He is born to raise the sons of earth. He is born to give them second birth. See, why would God choose to become man? Why would he go to such lengths to humble and expose himself like that? He's the answer in the, simplified, in the most simplified form. He did it out of love. And he did it out of love. See, friends, God wants to see reconciliation between sinner and himself so much. God wants to re- us to receive mercy and true peace at such heights. God wants us to experience the light and life that he brings to such fullness. He wants death to no longer be the end. And so he says to you and to I, I love you too much to let you go. I love you so much that I will become one of you. I will choose to be born, live, walk, breathe, and experience life as you do as the perfect man. And then I will die for you in your place as the perfect man. Because even though you and I are separated by a chasm even greater than the ocean itself, just like light from darkness, like good from evil, like right from wrong, I will come near to you, for you to be born and die in your place because I love you. 
And even though I know you don't, I know you don't deserve it, I want this fracturing to end. And so would you see everything I've done to come near to you? See, friends, the lyrics of the carol, in some sense, it's incomplete, right? Jesus was born and died so that no more may die. Jesus was born and died to raise the sons of earth. Jesus was born and died to give us a second birth. It's a sacrificial love that drove him to be born that, that first Christmas. And it's a sacrificial love that drove him to die on a cross 33 years later. Friends, we understand, don't we, that love you know, often requires sacrifice, right? right? We see that when we have friends in our life that have been wounded in some way, right? maybe they're in some emotional strife, maybe it's something more chronic, maybe it's a physical pain from, from a particular situation, whatever it is, in that moment to be a friend to them means what? It means being in a situation that can often be exhausting, can't it? That's draining. Why? Because we know that deep down that the only way that these, our friends can begin to fill up again is if somebody loves them. And the only way to love them is to let yourself if you, be drained. And in some senses, some of your fullness for your friend has to go to them. And if you choose to hold on to them and simply avoid them, well, they will in all likelihood begin to sink. And we understand that love requires sacrifice. It applies for, for those of us who are parents as well, right? I mean, I don't have kids of my own, but looking from a distance and looking at my own parents, children just don't grow to be dependent intuitively. My parents, in a way, you have to give up your independence, don't you, in order to help them grow beyond their dependency out of a sacrificial love. You read books that aren't all that interesting, to you, to help them develop their minds. You have conversations with them on the whole that aren't that profound in order, to know, in order for them to know that you are always there for them. And then there's the dressing and the bathing and the feeding and the teaching them to eventually do these things for themselves. You take hits so that they might be equipped to flourish. We understand that love requires sacrifice. And so when it comes to God, who is more loving than you or I, why wouldn't it make sense that he would, out of love, sacrifice by exposing and humbling himself by becoming one of us that first Christmas? Why wouldn't it make sense that he, out of love, would come into our world to deal with our fracturing and sacrificially die for us in our place? Because he did. So that death would not be the end. So that peace might be had. So that we might be restored and reconciled to God for eternity. And friends, that's the great news of Christmas. And so friends, as the band um, comes up, um, would you, as the carol invites us, hark and listen? Would you behold him, the king come incarnate? And would you rejoice at the depth of his love for you and receive him? If you do, Charles Wesley has a written response for us. Yeah? He writes, Joyful, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that at Christmas, we often need to slow down. We need to hear the good news that is Christmas. We need to behold that you would come to us to reconcile us to you.
Father, we thank you that um, the glories of heaven were things that you were willing to give up. That, Lord Jesus, you were willing to take on humanity for us and in our place so that you would ultimately die for us. Father, as we come to Christmas, I pray that we would come joyful, that we can declare with the angels the triumph that is God become flesh. Help us to sing loudly and boldly glory to the newborn King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.